Hello. Hi. Uh, how Hi. are you? <laughs> uh, welcome back to the weirdest thing, the, the, the weirdest thing podcast. <laughs> my how, my my hi and my how are you? Uh, through you, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. This is the weirdest thing podcast. I'm Amelia Ampuero. I am one of your hosts. I'm Scott Amaldo. I'm the other host. And we're here with some weird shit. So I, my story is like not a spooky season story exactly, but it's real fucking dark. So it kind of goes along. It's real, it's real murdery. So Mm, there you go. Okay. Okay. Mine is morbid and spooky. Okay. Good. No, that's good. Because Yeah. I was thinking this would be more spooky season-y and it turned out to be just like lots of dead people. So, you know. (laughs) Mine too, apparently. So (laughs) welcome to the lots of dead people podcast. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is coming out like the day after Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is. So, hopefully, everybody is eating their leftovers and you know, thinking about what Thanksgiving actually means, uh, mm-hmm. both in the like being grateful and also, uh, the slaughter. And, <sighs> um, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but what's it's because I can't think of the word. I keep wanting to say objectification, but that's not what I'm trying to. To yeah. say dehumanization, yeah, of indigenous peoples. So yeah, that that's actually going to kind of be uh, like part of the backdrop of my story this week. So. Awesome! So grab a slice of pumpkin pie and a mug of hot cocoa, and let's dig into all this awfulness. Yeah. So, uh, and I think I am going first. Is that correct? I believe you are. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess I will just. Go ahead and dive in. Why don't you? <laughs> Here we go. All right. So I do have a cold open. It's it's a long uh, quote, actually. <laughs> okay. From... I thought you were going to be like, it's a long cold open. And I was like. <laughs> no, it's like, okay. I mean, the cold open itself is like probably 25 minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, <What>? no, this <laughs> is. <laughs> sorry. 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 What movie is it that starts with a re- like a re- ridiculously long cold open i mean there have been a few i mean i i would say lord of the rings lord of the rings has a cold has a cold open kind of but like but those movies are also like 18 million years long so they are doesn't doesn't like pulp fiction or something have a i mean pulp fiction like structurally is so weird that like this is true it does have its cold open though but i don't think it's like an especially long one i know there's something that i was like what the what Okay. I, I will say in one of the TV pilots that I sold, I wrote a 10-minute cold open, which is I definitely a, pushing it. <laughs> I love a long cold open. Sorry, I don't mean yeah. to derail this, but I, I mean, clearly I love a cold open because I try to do one like every week. Yeah. But I love, I guess, maybe I'm not thinking of Yellow Jackets, the second episode of Yellow Jackets. That's kind of... Mm-hmm. 
uh, that's where Misty's where wandering around. And then she, I'm trying not to give any spoilers. So I'm doing a lot mm-hmm. of this with action. Uh, <laughs> so only Scotty can see it. Where yeah. she, and then the mother, mother song comes on. That's yeah, technically that, a cold open. I think that that works as a cold open. Actually, I think Yellow Jackets had a few cold opens. I've been uh, watching again. Um, Show so uh, the new Law and Order, which I don't know why I watch it because it's I don't, so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's it's literally like I'm I'm I think I really am just like hate watching it. But like they've got their classic like Law and Order cold opens, and it's just like they get worse and worse and stupider and stupider. Bum bum. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I will say again. Sorry to derail this, but I have been watching The Big Brunch. On what is that? HBO, Dan Levy. It's basically oh okay. So two sorry, recommendation corner. And then I (laughs) promise we're gonna get into the spooky stuff. Uh it's like it's it's in the spirit of great British bake off. Mm -hmm. Um, and that they bring together uh these people I think are a little bit more, they're not just like like great British bake off is all they're all like home bakers. And I think the people Mm -hmm. on the big brunch have more like actual professional experience, but it's Mm -hmm. all it's all brunches, which I love a brunch. And Dan Levy is such a treasure. Um, good job, Canada, on him. And so that's a lot of fun. And also, and also, if you are again a fan of shows like Great British Bake Off. Oh, 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 hold on, hold on. I need to, I need to look at, <laughs> I need to look it up because I'm forgetting the name of it. But it is a bartending show. Mm. So it's like a cocktail show. I think I know about this one. Drink Masters. Yeah, it's on yeah, Netflix. Yeah. And the woman who owns and runs happy accidents here in albuquerque is one of the contestants oh really okay yes i'll have to watch that and it's cool nice i mean they do some like cool shit with drinks i'm a sucker for like cocktail mixing i'm not good at it myself but listen i i mean i'm i'm still on my quest for albuquerque's best sidecar i had another one this last weekend (laughs) so i'm starting to get it and like everybody like be you full of cocktails like if they nice. came and it, have you been to happy accidents no i haven't okay I we're not so. sponsored we're not sponsored by them because we're not sponsored by anybody but <laughs> if happy accidents gets wins of this and wants to, to do this we would love to have we would love to have them they make the coolest silliest funnest cocktails like one of them has a an edible screen printed of bob ross nice. on it like floating on the top there's another one that comes with a bubble full of uh like smoke Ooh. Yeah. Um, Super cool cocktails that come. It's like a cocktail. And then it comes with like a little shot of like sparkling wine. Just fun. We well, we have to stuff. You'll have to take me there because I never go out to places anymore. Okay. I will. I def- yeah, I definitely want to check that out. Maybe we'll podcast straight from. <laughs> we could. <laughs> it's all loud, and then we're like, and then she was murdered. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. That's that's it. I'm done with recommendations corner. Okay, well, let's get back to my cold open, which, like I said, it's just it's a long quote. It's from legendsofamerica.com. Ready. So, in the spring of 1863, residents and travelers through Colorado territory feared for their lives as account after account of vicious murders were reported. And lone riders disappeared only for their bodies to be later found in a remote gully or hidden in the brush of the mountainsides. The murders were a mystery. No one knew who was responsible as the perpetrators left no clues. Numerous lookouts were posted throughout the regions of the killings, but they had no idea who to look for. Indians, a gang, 
or a lone vagabond desperado. The first victim was found in May of 1863, his corpse mutilated and the heart hacked out of his chest. (gasps) During that summer, 25 more people were attacked and killed similarly. Only when a wagon was attacked along a road to Fairplay, Colorado, and the driver was lucky enough to get away, were the murderers finally recognized. So this is the story of the bloody Espinosas. And this is a story that I remember hearing when I was going to college in Southern Colorado, Mm -hmm. uh, in the San Luis Valley, in Alamosa, Colorado. This was like local lore up there. And like people Mm. used to talk about it, but I didn't really know anything about it. And then I just happened to come across it again when I was doing research uh, for a short story, actually, and kind of dove into the story and was like, this is a fucked up dark story. (laughs) Okay. So here we go. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ready. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we got to start off before we get to the bloody Espinosas themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of manifest destiny. Yep. Uh, That's the, that's the appropriate reaction. So there was never actually like a set of defining principles for manifest destiny. It was never like in the constitution or like passed as a law or anything. No, it was just just like a bunch of white dudes being like, what if we just said this and then it happened? Yeah. It was basically like a general idea. There was no like specific policy or anything, Mm -hmm. Uh, but basically the, the idea is essentially that Americans have a quote, God given right to expand and conquer a people who are not capable of self-government. But who decides that they're not capable of self-government? White and dudes. what is the criteria? What is the what is the what is the criteria? Um, no, what no, is the criteria. No, the people who make the decision are white dudes, and the criteria is that the the people who are being conquered are not white dudes. Like, I'm th- already, I'm already mad. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah. Trust me. There's, there's no part of this that is me going to try and like convert you're you at, to you're, the, you're advocating the manifest for manifest. <laughs> No, but that, but that's what it is. I mean, it's basically the belief in the morality, like the inherent morality and value of American expansionism. Like okay. as like the expansionism itself is its own morality. Insert uh, eye roll gif here. Right. <laughs> um, and it grew out of other beliefs of the time, like American exceptionalism and something called romantic nationalism. So the idea of American exceptionalism, we've all heard of this before. It's the idea that the U.S. is inherently different than other nations. Mm-hmm. Our values, our political system, and our historical development set us apart from other nations throughout human history. Therefore, the U.S. is destined and entitled to play a distinctive, quote, positive role okay. on the world stage. Here's the thing about this. Mm-hmm. For, for any for any Trumpers who stumbled upon <laughs> our podcast, here's the thing. A lot of other countries have cool shit the way that yeah. the United States has cool shit. Uh-huh. And I'm going to wager... That anybody who truly, truly believes that has never been outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. I'm no, just going to say that. I think that I think that's true, and I think it was true even at the time. Now, to be fair to the U.S., this is not um, this is not something that's inherent in like the American like mindset. No, like, no, there are nations around the world who have their version of yes what, of exceptionalism of the yeah. idea that we're special yeah so we can do what we want yeah. this also leads to the idea of romantic nationalism which is a f- specific form of nationalism in which the state claims political legitimacy as an organic consequence of the unity of those it governs, including such factors as language race culture religion etc so the idea is that what makes us special is our people the people are what make us special, which sounds really nice until you think like, let's take this to its extreme. Then you get right. the 
Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So. Then it's like when we say our people, what we mean is white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, or you know, like I mean, Japan definitely had yes. their versions of this. Like very again, much so. Not inherent to white people or America or anything. You're right. But we for sure leaned into it. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So not not letting us off the hook at all. Okay. <laughs> so the thing that separates romantic nationalism from imperialism or imperial hegemony is the idea that in an imperialistic uh, system, the idea of the worth of the state is top down. So it comes from a monarch. It's like our ah. king is the best king. Therefore, we get to do what we want. Like it's the idea of the divine right of kings, quote unquote. Okay. Okay. Which also sucks. Like, if anyone who's watched the Game of Thrones knows, like, the divine right of kings is bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, basically, like, any use of power for nationalistic pursuits is generally pretty shitty. Sorry, I'm <laughs> laughing because, and I can't remember if I've brought it up on this podcast before, but anytime we start talking about stuff like this, I just remember when my brothers and sister-in-law were in town and we had ordered breakfast burritos <laughs> and my brother took, <laughs> she wasn't his wife at the time, but <laughs> she became his wife and my brother took his wife's burrito and took a bite out of it and claimed burrito nocta. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's so stupid. (laughs) I can't hear about any of this stuff without thinking of my brother taking a gigantic bite of her breakfast burrito. (laughs) And I think, I think he did it because he'd been the one to go and like get, I think we were all probably like hungover and stuff too. Mm -hmm. And like, he'd gone and like gotten dressed and gone to go pick up the burritos and basically He'd claimed Burrito Nocta uh, as his payment. (laughs) (laughs) So stupid. Okay. All right. (laughs) I promise not to interrupt this much for the rest of the story. Continue. (laughs) Well, um, but anyway, but like long story short, Manifest Destiny sucks. The U.S. president who's probably most like associated, at least early on, with the concept would be like Andrew Jackson. Um. But it really starts a few years after that with Frederick Polk. And I'll get there in a second. So, okay. So according to an historian named Frederick Merck, Manifest Destiny was born out of, quote, a sense of mission to redeem the old world by high example, generated by the potentialities of a new earth for building a new heaven. So, like, come the fuck out. Like, uh, that sounds some like some fundamentalist. Oh, it super is. And that's the thing about Manifest Destiny is that it's really, like, pretty drawn from, like, Christian superiority. So, like, mm. one, one major aspect of Manifest Destiny is that it's religiously driven. There's a historian, a guy named Nick Estes, links it to the 15th century Catholic doctrines, which distinguish Christians from non-Christians as basically, like, entirely different people. Um, and that that was the root justification for your European and then later American expansion. And this obviously, like, you can take this back to the Crusades. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, it's, again, not new concepts. Uh, also, like the Spanish Inquisition, very much driven by these same kind of sentences. Right. One thing that is important to know about Manifest Destiny, though, is that this was actually not particularly <clears throat> popular in the U.S. Okay. It was very popular amongst the elite and amongst, like, people in power. But amongst, like, just the people of the U.S., a lot of people are like, what the fuck are we doing? 
So again, f- according to this Frederick Merck, he says, like, the ideas around Manifest Destiny were contentious from the start. And he says, quote, from the outset, Manifest Destiny, vast in program, and its sense of continentalism was slight in support. It lacked national, sectional, or party following commensurate with its magnitude. The reason was it did not reflect the national spirit. The thesis that it embodied nationalism found in much historical writing is backed by little real supporting evidence. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't like there was a big movement amongst the people for this. It was like the rich landowner, yeah, uh, who were also the politicians, right? So back to the idea of a, of the religious roots of Manifest Destiny. It kind of you can you can take it back to the very founding of the country when Chief Justice John Marshall, who served from 1775 to 1782, so like at the beginning, mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> he spelled out the supposed rights of the U.S. to quote, indigenous lands, drawing upon the doctrine of Christian discovery. Mm. Um, So he ruled that indigenous people only possess, quote, occupancy rights, which means they can be displaced in service of, quote, discovery. Yeah. Uh, Again, like, no one else can see your face, but that is the (laughs) correct face. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Uh... An international jurist named Tanya Gunnell Frickner says, quote, the newly formed United States needed to manufacture an American Indian political identity and concept of Indian land that would open the way for United States and westward colonial expansion. And so in this way, Manifest Destiny, it was inspired by the original European colonization of the Americas, and it uses all the same justifications to excuse the violence against the indigenous nations. Mm. So this takes us to the Mexican-American War. Mm, Okay. Um, By the way, Manifest Destiny, the Mexican-American War, these are huge fucking topics. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'm doing like very much the cliff notes of them because I'm trying to get back to the Espinosas. But this is all the backdrop that leads. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. This is all the the backdrop that leads to what's going to happen. So it's kind of important to note that, again, like this is not something that's particularly unique to the United States and that Mexico and, of course, the Spanish Empire had their own versions of their own ideas around what we would call manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. And so the Mexican War is kind of two conquering peoples finally coming to conflict with each other. You know, the the United States is you know obviously based on the British colonies, Mexico, and what was called Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico mm-hmm. um, was all conquered by the Spanish, and you know they were sharing this continent after displacing and massacring lots of indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And then, but as they were both expanding, this of course led to conflict. So the Mexican-American War, it was an armed conflict between the U.S. and Mexico from 1846 to 1848. It followed, of course, the initial conflict between the Republic of Texas and Mexico, which if, and again, very much cliff notes, but the Republic of Texas had been part of Mexico, but sort of driven by United States Basically, it sounds like trying to like start shit with Mexico. Uh, a lot of Anglo settlers started just flooding into Texas. And then, of course, they wanted to secede from okay. Mexico. This led to the creation of the Republic of Texas, which, of course, Mexico was not uh, recognizing. Uh-huh. Um, the Republic of Texas was essentially a independent nation for, I think, about 12 years. But is they all... Is that why they're like that? <laughs> 
I mean, no comment, but you know, probably. I mean, they're real. Talk to Texans. They're real proud of the whole Republic of Texas thing. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, um, they had obviously gone to. I don't know if it was ever a declared war, but it was essentially like a civil war with Mexico to secede. This led to the Treaties of Velasco, where in 1836, the Mexican general slash president Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna signed an agreement with the Republic of Texas after the Battle of San Jacinto. Mm-hmm. Um, so the purpose was to end hostilities between the two nations and create <clears throat> the first steps to recognize Texas's independence from Mexico. After this, Texas was essentially an independent nation. But the thing is, like, the U.S. was, like, behind all this from the start because right. they... They wanted Texas from the start. And all the Anglo settlers in Texas always had the plan right. of being annexed by the United States. <clears throat> this yeah. was complicated for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which was the question of whether Texas would enter the Union as a slave state. Right. Um Right, right, right. You know, so there's a lot of Northerners who are not in support of the annexation of Texas, et cetera. So, again, very much just like breezing through this. There's a whole lot more. It's a fascinating history, but there's a lot more to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, the Battle of San Jacinto happened. Santa Ana was captured by Texas. And so he essentially signed the treaty to guarantee his release. And he said that when he got back to Mexico City, he would push for Texas's independence. But when he got back, the Mexican Congress was like, no, 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 no. You are not acting on our behalf. So we're not recognizing this. So they nullified the treaties. Oh, they yeah. removed Santa Ana as president and replaced him with Anastasio Bustamante. And then there was an agreement within the Mexican Congress that Santa Ana had, quote, offered nothing in the name of the nation. Mm. So, like, the conflict has not been uh, solved. Yeah. And this, of course, uh, is exacerbated when in 1844, James K. Polk is elected president on the promise of expanding U.S. territory all the way to Oregon, California, and Texas. The problem, of course, being that California and Texas are part of Mexico. Or Texas is the Republic of Texas. Mm -hmm. But there's already a boundary dispute. There's still a boundary dispute in Texas about basically whether it's the Nueces River or the Rio Grande is the border. Okay. Um, and this was so. This is a major source of conflict already between the Republic of Texas and Mexico, even after the signing of the treaties. And then the U.S., but they wanted California, they wanted Oregon, they wanted everything. To the West, yeah. Manifest destiny. Manifest um, destiny. Okay. So you know, Polk is elected. Texas is like cool 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 we're part of you guys now mexico's like no 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 that's not what we agreed to um actually we didn't agree to anything (laughs) it was just that santa Ana asshole yeah um and so the mexican-american war gets started and i'm not gonna go through the whole mexican-american war because there's again lots of shit happens okay but the war spread from texas through the region of santa fe de nuevo mexico Mm -hmm. which included most of present-day New Mexico, where we are, Mm -hmm. southern Colorado, parts of southwestern Kansas, and and the Oklahoma Panhandle. The original capital, of course, being Santa Fe. Mexico City was ultimately captured by the United States in September of 1847. Even though Mexico pretty decisively lost on the battlefield, many Mexican factions were still refusing to consider any recognition of its lost territory. But ultimately, their hand was forced and the u.s and mexico signed the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo ending the war and i forgot to write down the year i think 1848 and that's when of course mexico ceded present-day california nevada arizona utah and new mexico along with parts of colorado and wyoming mexico ultimately recognized the rio grande as its northern border and that's essentially created the borders that we know today okay of the country so 
back to the bloody espinosis. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Finally. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's all the backdrop. That's all the background. So Felipe Nerio Espinosa was probably born around 1827 near present day El Rito, New Mexico, which is about, it's still like El Rito is still a town. I think it's, I looked it up. It's an unincorporated community. It's about 30 miles north of Espanola. Um, wow. Okay. At the time that he was born, it was still Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico. There are a lot of like contradictory sources about this story. So okay. other sources say he was actually born in Veracruz, Mexico. Plenty of people say no, it was actually like his family was from Veracruz, but they had already settled in uh, Santa Fe de Nuevo, Mexico by the mm-hmm. time he was born. His parents were Pedro Ignacio Espinosa and Gertrudez Chavez. Pedro was born in Abiquiu, New Mexico. And at some point, the Espinosas were given a land grant near San Rafael, Colorado. And of course, given the land grant by Mexico mm-hmm. uh, before the war. Felipe also had a brother named Jose Vivian Espinosa and at least one sister. His parents raised the family to be intensely patriotic, obviously, to Mexico. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're patriotic. They considered themselves Mexicans. Mm-hmm. Um, they were also deeply religious. So the Mexican census of 1845 lists several Espinosa family members in and around El Rito. And then the 1860 U.S. sentence lists Felipe is living in Conejos near Taos, New Mexico okay. with his wife and son and daughter. Okay. Um, so this, I, I want you to take this with a grain of salt. I read this. I think this was, I can't remember which source this is from. It says, little was known of Felipe's appearance, but witnesses at the time described him as having an overdeveloped jaw and a, quote, toothy jack-o'-lantern grin. <laughs> so <laughs> that feels like some retconning from people after the fact to me, but <laughs> who knows? A toothy jack-o'-lantern grin yeah poor guy what what if we found what if we could go back in time and he did just look like a big pumpkin head yeah well i mean he i mean it kind of sounds like he had like the Habsburg jaw or whatever kind of yeah Yeah. well i mean maybe the the Habsburg is like 1500s so maybe yeah well longer than that but yeah i don't remember when they i mean i think they're still technically around but but i mean um, like that one right who again uh, would have been named, uh, what would it be? Balconjeta. <laughs> <laughs> they would have called him, uh, or they would have called him Heton. Would, uh, <laughs> we're, just, they're just, we're just mean. Okay, continue. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's really the only description you find of Felipe. Also that he had a big, thick black beard. I saw that in some places too. Okay. So following the Mexican-American War, the Espinosa family suddenly found themselves to be residents of the United States, first as part of the territory of New Mexico, and then later as the territory of Colorado. Mm-hmm. One article in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo stated that all Mexicans living in this new territory would keep their land. They'd also have the choice of remaining either a Mexican national or becoming an American citizen. Because mm-hmm. we're all just welcoming. Yeah, so welcoming. Yeah, So welcoming. So, you know, just like extending the olive branch. Yep, yep. I talked about this a little bit in the Lowrider episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I'm sure all of you guys, if you know the history of the United States and treaties, you can, you can guess. You can which guess is which is a little like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. just on account of the fact of the American public education system. Right. <laughs> That's true. So this could be brand new I, information for a lot of people. 
I mean, I'm guessing our listeners, I, I have faith in our listeners. You know what? So do I. You're right. They're the best. <laughs> um, so the Colorado Territory was formed in 1861. Since Colorado had a higher, already had a higher Anglo population than New Mexico, the laws and the tax regime favored this new, quote, American population. Mm. Um, and then after the creation of the territory, new taxes were created that targeted the existing Mexican population. This was especially contentious in the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado, which was right along the New Mexico border. And resentment between Americans and Mexicans began to rise dramatically. The situation was made worse because these new laws and taxes were drafted in English. And obviously, most of the Mexicans and ex-Mexicans in the area only read or spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. So the Espinosa family, like many in the region, became deeply, deeply embittered against the United States. Mm-hmm. So... Let's get to the background of the killing spree. Okay, let's do it. Well, it's not known exactly what caused them to start murdering everyone in sight. There are a few stories that kind of, or a few theories, I should say, that explain the decision. One story, this is more like legend, and I would say, again, take it with a grain of salt. Okay. But I read this in several places. It says, uh... Felipe supposedly told his family that he had been visited by the Virgin Mary, who told him to kill a hundred Anglos for every member of his family who had been lost in the Mexican-American War. That is bad news. Yeah, it's a lot of Anglos. It's also like... Well, it's also just like, don't use the Virgin in that way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, supposedly this is what he told his family. So... Okay. Um. Again, I don't know. Like, who's you know? Is this is this like legend making after the fact? Right. 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 Who knows? A probably more likely story is that the killings were in at least in part out of revenge for atrocities committed against the Espinosa family by American soldiers in the region. So, uh, content warnings abound from here on out. Okay. Um, great. <laughs> yeah. Specifically involving sexual assault and like lots of murder. So. Okay. Supposedly in this version of the story, it said that American soldiers had raped Philippe's wife and daughters. Mm. Some sources I read said this happened at the end of the Mexican-American War. Others say it happened in 1861. Either way, it said that his wife died four days later. So whatever happened would have been real brutal. Yeah. A similar incident happened at his brother Jose's house. Jose Vivian. I've seen him named Jose, Jose Vivian, and Vivian. So Okay. Okay. um, But anyway, a similar incident happened at his house. After a soldier (laughs) supposedly raped his sister, Vivian killed the soldier. This led more soldiers to come to the ranch and murder everyone there out of revenge. The soldiers then took possession of the land and everything on it. Just about every source I saw said that at least six family members were killed in that incident. It's also likely that the motive was at least in part driven by the fact that the Espinola's land grant in Conejos County was not being honored. Mm. Um, and more and more white settlers were just like moving onto their property yeah, um, and squatting. And they would, you know, try to go get them kicked off. And the soldiers and the law were basically like, nope, we'll do nothing. Manifest destiny. Yeah. Manifest destiny. Now, again, I I do want to point out that the Espinosas, you know, and Mexico had already come and displaced a lot of like Native American and indigenous people. So, like, there's no good guys. 
in this. Right. So the Espinosa brothers had already been accused of horse theft, which may or may not have been a pretext to make them like outlaws and to mm-hmm. give a reason to confiscate their land. Mm-hmm. An historian named Charles F. Price says in the 2013 Denver Westward interview, he placed more of the blame on the Espinosas themselves. He said that the killing spree was part of a tax revolt and that the soldier killed by Vivian Espinosa had not, in fact, raped his sister but had been sent to arrest them for not paying their taxes. I didn't follow that thread too far, but literally that's the only person I saw who said that. Okay. So I don't know what your deal is, Charles F. Price, but um, I, I need more. I need more from you. Whatever the reason, it's known that by this point, Philippe and his entire family had developed an intense hatred for all of the Anglo-Americans who were moving into the area. Hmm. It, In his journal, he wrote, quote, they ruined our family. They took everything in our house, first our beds and blankets, then our provisions. Seeing this, we said we would rather be dead than see such infamies committed on our families. These were the reasons we had to go out and kill Americans. Revenge for the infamies committed on our families. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, So let's get to the killing spree. Um, So the initial perpetrators were Philippe and his brother, uh, Vivian. Other family members at various points, it sounds like, joined. But again, I was seeing lots of conflicting information. But it sounds like at least some of their cousins were probably participating in at least some of it. Mm -hmm. The first known victim was a sawmill worker named Jim Harkins. I could not figure out where exactly this happened. But Harkins was attacked in the spring of 1863. He was shot in the forehead with a Colts Navy revolver, after which point the Espinosa split his head open with an axe and hacked his heart out of his chest. Wow. Um, after his murder, they just started moving around. And they, particularly, I think that was still down in kind of the New Mexico area. At this point, they moved up into the San Luis Valley of Colorado. And I could not find a whole lot on a lot of the specific victims. And again, I was seeing a lot of conflicting information from the sources. But it sounds like they basically were targeting anyone they could find who was alone or in a small group and far enough away from others where like gunshots and screams couldn't be heard. Mm, okay their main area of activity was around south park colorado they would stalk their victims for hours or even days before finally striking they would usually either ambush their victim and shoot them in the head but sometimes they would actually gun them down from a distance using long-range rifles and then once the victim was dead they'd mutilate the bodies again content warnings they would usually disembowel or decapitate them sometimes they would carve crucifixes into their chests or they would drive stakes through their hearts, or like with Harkins, they would tear the hearts out of their bodies. Dang. Yeah, they weren't fucking around. No. Now, at least according to legend, there was a definite Robin Hood aspect to their crimes. Okay. So according to this legend, Philippe had spoken with many other Mexican and ex-Mexican nationals in the area, and he found that the same type of things were being perpetrated on them that had happened to their family. Mm. And so... What the Espinosas would do, again, according to legend, is that they would specifically target and kill those who had taken land from Mexican families, and then they would give the land back to those families. Okay. At this point, still, nobody knew who was doing it. They weren't leaving any evidence. They were leaving no witnesses. Mm. But this is all happening essentially in a few months period of time. Okay. Um. So it's just like a massacre throughout the reason. Yeah. So it's known that there's something going on. The Colorado governor, a guy named John Evans, started trying to mobilize the military to go look, to 
track down whoever was doing it. And while this was happening, Philippe actually sent an anonymous letter to the governor threatening to kill, quote, 600 gringos, including Evans himself, if Philippe and his gang were not granted amnesty for the killings and were not given 5,000 acres in Conales County. Which, okay. I mean, you can imagine it was probably a non-starter. Yeah. So, all right. On April 25th, 1863, Philippe tried to kill a lumberman named Matthew Metcalf. They had been attacking, the Espinosas were attacking a wagon outside of Fairplay, Colorado. Metcalf rode up on them. Philippe tried to shoot him, but Metcalf managed to get away. Um, And he managed to make it to a nearby fort where he gave descriptions of, and I saw this listed as, quote, both assailants. So I'm guessing this was him and Vivian. Mm, I don't know about any cousins or anything at this point. Okay. So a guy named Captain John McCannon of the 3rd Colorado Cavalry formed a posse. Um, They set out the next day and started working the Espinosa's back trail. Again, not knowing exactly who it is, but now at Mm. least they have a description. Okay. So they rode all day and night, and then they finally came upon two horses that were tied up in a small canyon meadow. And I couldn't find exactly where this is, but somewhere, again, I think kind of near South Park. Okay. After the posse moved into position, Vivian emerged from the trees. Someone in the posse, I couldn't find who, fired. Uh, they struck Vivian, slammed him into a tree. He was he reached for a pistol on his hip, but before he could get there, a second bullet hit him in the head mm. and killed him. Um, after he fell, another man came out of the trees and he was wearing an expensive coat that had been stripped of one of their victims, a guy named Billy Young, who was at this point not known to have been killed. And Young was known to Captain McCannon. So when Captain McCannon saw him, he actually called for his men to hold their fire, shouting, for God's sake, don't kill Billy. But then the man turned around, they saw the black beard, and they realized it was Philippe. Mm. They tried to shoot, but it was too late. And he disappeared into the trees. But at least they got Vivian. So as proof that they killed him, they cut off his head Mm. because that's what you do in a civilized society. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then they buried the body. Yeah, mark of a civilized society. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, manifest destiny. <laughs> <laughs> manifest destiny. <laughs> okay. So Philippe laid low for months after Vivian's death, and so rumors were spreading. And I think at this point, people knew who he was. They got Vivian. They were like, "Oh, that's um, Vivian Espinosa. So this must be his brother." Mm -hmm. Um, so he laid low for months. Rumors had spread that he either died alone in the wilderness or somehow fled to Mexico. Mm -hmm. But in fact, he just kind of went home. He kind of went back to, uh, Canales County, the San Rafael area. Okay. He was drinking heavily. He was mourning his brother. Yeah. And while he was there, he enlisted his 14-year-old nephew, Jose Vicente, to join him in seeking revenge for Vivian's death. Now, I saw other, um... Sources. Legends of America says that it was not Jose Vicente, but it was actually his cousin Julian who took Vivian's place. Okay. Days later, on October 10th, Philippe and Jose Vicente uh, tried to hold up a wagon. Um, or at least this is one of the stories that I read. Philippe was falling down drunk, however, so the two passengers managed to jump off the wagon and get away. They made it all up to Fort Garland, Colorado, and told the fort's commander, guy named Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Tappan, what happened. Tappan was already aware of their reputation, and so he reached out to a guy he knew, a, a mountain man and tracker named Thomas Tate Tobin, to find them. Okay. Um, Legends of America has a slightly different story. They say that Tappan enlisted Tobin after Philippe and his nephew and or cousin 
ambushed and murdered a married couple on the Vita Pass in Colorado. Okay, okay, okay. So, but either way, this is the beginning of the end. So at midnight on October 12th, this trapper, um, Thomas Tate Tobin, uh, he leads a regiment of 15 Union soldiers out of Fort Garland to track down Philippe and Jose Vicente. Three days later, on October 15th, they saw crows circling in the distance along with a plume of smoke. So Tobin ordered the soldiers to hang back. Um, And then he crawled forward with his rifle to investigate, accompanied only by a young Mexican boy. I could not find any. I don't know what that dude's story is. I couldn't find anything else about him. But but either way, Tobin found Felipe and Jose cooking meat over a small fire. Mm. When Felipe stood to stretch, Tobin fired. The bullet hit him in the side and sent him to the ground. Jose, the nephew, immediately ran for the trees, but Tobin managed to get off a shot hit him in the spine and instantly killed him as philippe was trying to crawl away tobin walked up to him grabbed him by the hair and cut off his head with his bowie knife when Jeez, uh, louise yeah again not fucking around yeah um or so when tobin got back to fort garland colonel tappan was surprised to see him because it was only, he was only gone for a few days and so he invited tobin into his office and tobin's carrying like a big burlap sack that's slung over his shoulder colonel tappan's like come into my office and when they get in there he says any luck tom so so said tobin and then he unhoisted the sack dumped it on the floor and the two heads go rolling out under the mm, floor. Mm-hmm. That's one story. <laughs> okay. Uh, Legends of America has a different story. And this supposedly comes from research conducted by a guy named Martin Edward Martinez, who's actually a descendant of the Espinosas. Mm, okay. Um He says the Tobin was actually a trusted family friend of the Espinosa brothers. And so he managed to trick Philippe and his nephew into coming to the camp alone. They sat around getting drunk. And finally, Philippe and his nephew and or cousin passed out. At that point, Tobin slit their throats. Mm. So, again, who knows? He was supposed to receive a reward of $2,500 for killing them. Instead, he only received $1,500. So, you know, there you go. That's the end of the Espinosas. Uh, It's known that they killed at least 25 people. But by their own admission, they actually killed 32 people. Okay. So, like I said, there's no good guys in the story yeah there's no heroes um, yeah er- everyone sucks okay <laughs> and this martin edward martinez to close things out he has a quote that's just kind of talking about you know because like i said he's a descendant of mm. the espinosas I and mean, he's got a quote just kind of talking about his family's complicated history and their complicated history as both mm. mexicans and americans mm-hmm. in this region he says quote the story of the espinosas unveils the hardship and the terror that they faced when the soldiers frontiersmen pioneers and settlers came after the mexican and american war this is the case not only for the Espinosas, but also for the Mexican families that lived in a conquered land. Mexicans had to adjust their life, culture, and ways in order to fit into the, quote, new world. It was a new way of life for the Mexican families. If the Espinosas were bandits, guerrilla fighters, and killers, let the truth be known. If the Espinosas were fighting for justice, let it be known. The Espinosas could even have been heroes. But for myself, I am the proof, for it was my great-great-grandmother who was raped. I would have not been here to write this senior thesis if it was not for the men who raped her. That is the story of the bloody Espinosas. Of the wow. Yeah. Um, Yikes. Crazy, uh, crazy violent story. Yeah. Um, it really gets to just like, I'm not sure how many people really understand how 
fucking vicious the old west was uh, like yeah. that period yeah and and like one thing that's fascinating to me about this story is i mean i think it's i think it's easy to demonize the united states and kind of almost treat the the espinosas as martyrs but you got to remember they're also the descendants of conquerors who came in and displaced and massacred entire groups of people so mm-hmm. you know like i said this is like this is the clashing of two countries um yeah who have a pretty bloody history around yeah colonization so yeah there you go well (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't have like a good happy ending for you yeah all right (laughs) well there we go there we go (laughs) (laughs) okay we're moving right into mind we need to take a break uh i'm good Um, okay you know i love a cold open well here we go so let's begin my story begins in the wake of the september 11th attacks So in the wake of these September 11th attacks, uh, the debris and rubble from the World Trade Center was taken to Fresh Kills Landfill in Staten Island. Mm. Um, During that time, first responders and volunteers were, they were searching for the remains of the people who had died in the attacks. Uh, It was this Mm. like big project to identify bodies and do all that stuff. So as morbid as that task sounds for many who were there, what actually struck those volunteers, uh, many of whom were retired and active first responders, was the woman that a lot of them saw out there at Fresh Mm. Kills. Standing on hills of rubble and carrying what appeared to be a tray of sandwiches and coffee, she was seen several times by several different people. The woman, who appeared to be black and was dressed in a World War II era Red Cross nurse outfit, was Mm. always seen from a distance. And when anyone tried to approach her, she would vanish into thin air. Today, I'm going to talk to you about disaster ghosts. Yes. Sources for this are uh, Wikipedia, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, CBS News, the Daily Tribune. Yep, the Daily Tribune, the Claremont Sun, the New York Post, Windy City Ghosts.com, and American Hauntings, Inc. Mm. I'm going to come back to that story that I just told you, but we're going to start with some other stuff. First, we're actually going to talk about the ghosts of Flight 191. Uh, Scotty, I know, I know you are familiar with flight 191. I probably, but I'm not remembering the specific flight. Right from the, right from the flight number. Okay. (laughs) So this was on May 25th, 1979, American Airlines. Oh, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Flight 191 was taking off from Chicago's O'Hare International Airport, and it was en route to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, As it was taking off from runway 32R, the left engine detached, the plane lost control, and ended up crashing in a field less than one mile from the end of the runway. I know we have talked about this plane crash on the Mm -hmm. podcast. It is the one, if if you look it up, the first image you will see is a plane just just flying yeah wrong like right I, I remember looking at the pictures and being like my brain like short-circuiting yeah, for a it, second because i was wing, like but it's not supposed to go that way yeah one wing dropped and it was basically like 90 degrees and then yeah one other fucked up part of the story that i got from that air show disaster show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, air crash investigation is that a new feature on the planes was like they had a camera in the front where you could actually see the takeoff yeah. 
Yep. Um, and so you just imagine all the people watching it on the screen. Well, but they don't actually know if that happened because they are un- because, and I don't, I'm trying to see if I had this. No, I don't. So what happened is they don't have a black, they don't have a black box recording of mm-hmm. this flight because when the engine went off, the power went out. Right. So they know that that plane had that capability, but they don't know if it was actually working because the engine blew off. That's true. That's so small mercy. Yeah. Let's pretend for the sake. But also it happened real fucking it fast. It happened very, very fast. Yeah. Okay. So debris from the plane was hurled into a trailer park that was next to the field, destroying five trailers and several cars. And due to the force of the impact and the nearly full fuel tank, the aircraft was like completely destroyed. Quote, mm-hmm. no sizable components other than the engines and tail section remained. It just like disintegrated. All 271 people on board flight 191 were killed as well as two employees at a nearby repair garage Mm. until September 11th. It was the deadliest commercial aircraft accident in U.S. history. Yeah. So that happens. And pretty soon after the crash, people start seeing stuff. Mm. Um. According to the Deplane police, motorists started to call in reports of bobbing white lights in the field where Flight 91 had gone down. Mm. And because police were like, this is probably like some fucking creepy souvenir hunters that are out there like looking for pieces of the plane and stuff. They went out every time Mm -hmm. and they never found anything. Mm. And like a lot of times they were very, very close. Yeah. And they would zoom out there. Nothing. Nothing there. Nope, just a silent and empty field. Meanwhile, and it's like a field, so it's like not it's like there's field. anywhere people can hide. Precisely. Meanwhile, the residents of that neighboring trailer park, they had their hands full with some pretty creepy encounters, Mm. many coming as soon as hours after the crash. There are stories and reports of that dogs in the trailer park would just look in the direction of the field and just bark and bark and bark and bark. Yeah. Residents heard knocking on their doors and windows. And when they would go to check, nobody was there. Doorknobs would turn and rattle. Footsteps could be heard approaching the trailers and even climbing the metal steps to the front doors. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It feels very, oh God. Yeah. I I hate it. Um, It just reminds me, and I won't go into it because I think I've already gone into it on this show before, but when I was camping out in my friend's living room because I was house sitting and someone at two in the morning was like banging on the front door. And then when I threw the door open, there's nobody there. There was a, and I don't remember what it was. I don't think, I don't think it was a twilight zone, but maybe it was of this guy. And I think it's something like he goes to take care of his like very, very sick rich uncle and there's a painting and it's like kind of like the 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 house where his uncle lives is sort of like out in a sort of a swampy marshland Mm -hmm. kind of like maybe it's like a southern mansion kind of thing Mm -hmm. and there's a painting of the outside and i think the guy ends up killing his uncle so that he gets the inheritance Mm -hmm. and like the next day a little grave shows up in the painting and then like as time progresses like a hand pops out Mm -hmm. and then like it's like a body crawling out of it and then like it progresses and progresses until like he sees the body of his dead uncle is like at the door of the house and he hears a knocking. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a night gallery episode. I'm not sure. 
maybe. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so we've got stuff like that happening and we act, we have like actual encounters. Many, uh, people who lived in that trailer park, uh, said that they would open their doors to find a worried looking man talking about having to get his luggage or make a connecting flight. Ooh. The figure would then turn and vanish. Yeah. There were stories of like moans and cries in the middle of the night coming from the field where the Ugh, plane had crashed. Yeah. Even like years later after res like residents who lived in the trailer park at the time, they were like, fuck this noise. And they moved out and new residents would move in. They still were experiencing stuff. Uh, okay. There is a story of a tenant, a new tenant, and he was out walking his dog near the field uh, one evening when he was approached by a young man who said he needed to make an emergency phone call. When the guy who was walking his dog turned to be like, well, maybe you can find a phone over there. And he turned, sorry, hold on. Uh, let me go back a little bit. Um, okay. Need to make an emergency phone call. When the dog walker looked more closely at the young man, he noticed that the guy reeked of gasoline and was like Ooh. smoldering. Ooh. And the guy walking his dog was like, yeah, maybe you're right, buddy. Yeah. And he was like, maybe he's been like running through the field. And so he's kind of like steaming. And yeah. that's why it looks like he's smoldering. At any rate, the guy with the dog was like, okay. You might be able to find a phone like over there. And he turned to point when he turned back, the young man had vanished. Mm. It would take 32 years for a formal memorial to the victims of Flight 191 to be built. And one was finally erected after a sixth grade class spent two years fighting to get one made. It's crazy that, like, that just seems like it should have been an automatic. It does, yes. Yeah. The memorial is a two-foot-tall brick wall, and the bricks bear the names of the victims. Mm. Yes. So that's that's it for the Flight 191 ghosts. My next story starts with, do you remember Anna Gasteyer? She was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So back in like 2005, 2006, she was performing as Alphaba in Wicked at the Oriental Theater in Chicago. Okay. If anybody knows Wicked, there's a whole scene where Alphaba flies, mm. blah, blah, blah. And she was talking about, she's actually on an episode of a show called Celebrity Ghost Sightings. <laughs> she talks about how when she was up there flying, she would like kind of look around and she could see into the, like the wings of the stage. And, you know, it's wicked. So there's a lot of crew people. But Gastar was always like, what she said was that there were way more people than should have been there. And mm. they were grouped together oddly, like they were like families or that kind of a thing. Okay. This happened a couple of times and she would get down and nobody was ever there. I mean, nobody who mm -hmm. shouldn't have been there was ever there. She has another experience of walking down the hallways backstage and she comes across a woman with a little boy and a little girl and they're all dressed in period clothing. And so mm. Gastire is kind of like, okay, they must be, they're probably actors. So Gastire like smiles and nods and the woman didn't smile back, only stared at her and like nodded her head. Gastire passes them and is like, that's weird. And when she turned back to take another look at them, they were gone. Okay. Gastire mentions it to one of her dressers and she's like, I keep seeing all this like weird shit. And the dresser was like, oh yeah, well, it's getting close to December 31st or December 30th, isn't it? 
The theater where Gaslar was performing Wicked, which was the Oriental, now it is the Nederlander, stands mm-hmm. on the spot where the Iroquois Theater mm-hmm. once stood. And the Iroquois Theater yeah. is the site of one of the worst fires in U.S. history. I've got to get a little bit more into the Iroquois fire just to explain things a little bit better because yeah. the crash stuff is... We get it. The crash happened. Right. Okay. So on November 23rd, 1903, the Iroquois Theater opened at 2428 West Randolph Street in Chicago, Illinois. The theater, named the most beautiful in Chicago by the New Mm -hmm. York Clipper, which, by the way, was the predecessor of Variety, was specifically located in that spot to attract women on day trips from out of town. The location was chosen because it was thought that ladies would prefer to attend Attend a show in the police patrolled loop shopping district. The theater, the Iroquois, was opened after multiple delays due mm-hmm. to labor disputes. Yep. So already we're not off to a great start. Right. The theater had a capacity of 1,602 seats and it had three levels. It had 700 seats on the first, 400 on the second, 500 on the third, and only one entrance mm-hmm. um, and one big staircase to the upper levels. The whole point of that was so that people could see and be seen on this staircase. Right. I'm also going to stop here and say, while I am giving some history of the Iroquois Theater fire, it is a pretty big topic. And when I searched it on Spotify, there were no less than 25 podcasts who go Mm -hmm. deep into the entire story. Please go check one of them out. One of them being stuff you missed in history class. And they do a fantastic job covering this, this topic. I think that's where I first heard of it was on that. Stuff yeah. In history class. yeah. Yeah. And they do a pretty rapid fire. The episode I think is only about 33, 35 minutes long, but they go, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a, it's a pretty good, um, yeah. episode on the topic. Okay. So Chicago ordinances, I'm going back to the staircase, the one entrance, the one staircase, Chicago ordinances required separate stairways and exits for each level. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. We had this really pretty staircase. Um, (laughs) The Iroquois Theater was also described as, quote, absolutely fireproof. (laughs) At 3.15 p.m., a muslin scenery curtain catches fire when it brushes against a stage light. Mm -hmm. Stage lights, especially because a lot of them are, a lot of us are using LEDs now. Right. um, So they don't get anywhere near as hot as they used to but even back when i back in the day when i started stage lights were still pretty hot this was even before then theaters were catching fire left and right well i remember when i was um in high school i was working uh the spotlight for the los almas little theater Mm -hmm. and i burned myself pretty good on it because i I just wasn't paying attention i I don't remember what part of it i took but like the metal housing was fucking baking yeah real hot yeah so this muslin scenery curtain catches fire it it was like a spotlight the spot operator tries to basically like pat it out like clap it out Mm. but the fire starts climbing and it's soon out of his reach the theater had a quote-unquote fireman who grabbed two canisters of something called kill fire which was basically baking soda Mm, okay Uh uh-huh and tried to use those now this would have worked great if we were talking about a grease fire that was on a horizontal surface right it's not going to work at all on a vertical surface that's covered in oil paint right so that doesn't work at all (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I just love that they were like, it's totally fireproof. I mean, it's just like, 
they just said it and thought that would make it true. It's like it's like the Titanic. Oh, it's totally unsinkable. Well, I think sure. the thing is, is that they had all these plans for stuff, but then the owners were like, hey, we want to get this theater open for the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, road to hell, best intentions, all that good stuff. Okay. So the fire quickly spreads into the fly gallery that was holding thousands of square feet of highly flammable material. The stage manager tries to lower the fire curtain. A fire curtain is a curtain that should be made of asbestos woven with metal threads. It basically becomes Mm -hmm. a barrier. Had that happened, the fire would have probably like raged backstage, but the audience would have been safe. Mm -hmm. The curtain catches on something and can't lower. Actor Eddie Foy, who was appearing in the show, which was a play about Bluebeard, he steps out on stage. He's a Chicago native. He comes out and he's like, hey, everybody, it's okay. Like, we're going to get everything taken care of. Everybody stay calm. You know, everybody be cool. And for like a bit, that's working. But Mm -hmm. the patrons can see that the fire is spreading. Yeah. And everyone starts to panic. Of course. Okay. So let's go back to that absolutely fireproof thing. (laughs) The Iroquois was honestly anything but. Inspectors had been saying, as they'd been coming through and doing their inspections, they were like, this joint is not fireproof. It's not up to code. This isn't going to work. You need to have Mm. all the stuff. You can't have this. You can't have that. The problem was, is that city officials were really like... Eh, about it. Apparently the owners mm-hmm. of the theater had uh, and the managers had been giving city officials free tickets. <laughs> so they weren't like really um, yeah. inspired to do a lot of stuff to like yeah, slow like, down. I mean, you've got baking soda. I'm sure you'll be fine. You Look, you've got two canisters of kill fire. <laughs> uh, you're fine. So let's go through uh, how the patrons were failed by the lax fire and safety practices, shall we? Mm-hmm. That sure. asbestos curtain that I mentioned was actually made of mostly wood pulp and asbestos, <laughs> making it basically useless. Yeah. A fire curtain made of wood pulp. Right. Okay. The, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Draw you they, guys a picture. <laughs> <laughs> they also hadn't tested the curtain in terms of like bringing it in and out. Mm. so they'd never run it the first time they like put hands on it was when the stage manager tried to bring it in when the place was already on fucking fire right there were these skylights in the roof that were meant to be opened in case of a fire so that smoke and heat could escape they had Mm. been fastened closed Mm -hmm. because of course they were Mm -hmm. there were 30 exit doors Mm -hmm. but they mostly opened inward so once people were pushed up against them, they couldn't back them up to open yeah. them. The couple that were opened then trapped people behind them in between like the wall and the door. Mm-hmm. They also had something that's called as bascule latches. These were a European style latch that like maybe the ushers knew how to work, but like the mm-hmm. people who were running up there were like, how the fuck do I yeah. open this door? Okay. There were no exit signs over the doors and many of the doors were concealed by drapes. Mm-hmm. The staff. Had That's never... what I remember is the concealed by drapes part. Mm-hmm. The staff had never been trained in fire drills. There was no emergency lighting. Exit routes were confusing. And there were apparently a lot of ornamental doors that didn't lead to exits. There's stories mm. about how after the fire, I think the whole thing took 15, 20 minutes mm-hmm. to like burn the fucking thing down. Right. And when firefighters got in, they found like 200 bodies in just this corridor. 
There was no exit. Just didn't lead anywhere, right? No. There was no fire alarm. There were no fire extinguishers, like real ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were no sprinklers. The Mm -hmm. fire escapes, there were fire escapes. So from the the upper levels, there were fire escapes, but they were badly built. Like one of them had been built to the original specs of the building, but those had been changed. So it actually like a door opened and then two feet down was the fire escape. So people would open the door and just like tumble out. Jesus. Mm -hmm. When they got out there, the fire escapes that were working, like the ones at the top, the ones underneath it were already raging with fire. So a lot of people just jumped. Mm -hmm. And those fire escapes were in the alley between the Iroquois and the buildings next to it. That was like where the loading would happen for the theater and everything. This alley became known as Death Mm -hmm. Alley. Mm -hmm. Um, The stairways were blocked with iron gates because the managers didn't want people who'd bought cheap upper level tickets sneaking down into the expensive seats mm. level. Yeah. So everybody was trapped on the level that they were on. Right. The doors had also been locked from the outside so that people couldn't sneak in and see the show for free. Mm. Yeah. There is like everything about the story which is why i'm like go and and learn more about it i am doing an extreme cliff notes version of this Mm -hmm. everything about this story like so much of it was completely avoidable and so much of it wasn't avoided for the sake of making more money yeah which is usually what happens. Which is usually like the amount of disasters that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels like a lot of them in, are in the U.S., but I'm sure there are plenty all over the world. But the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, that's another one where the bosses were like, we don't want you taking breaks. We want you working your full like 18 hour shifts. So we're locking right. the doors. It's, you know, yeah. it's just it's just. It's just a fucking tragedy. I will say that the Iroquois theater fire did lead to the invention of the crash bar. I was going to ask, because I, I knew one of those fires did. Yep. I couldn't yep. remember which one. Okay. Yep. It was the invention of the crash bar. For anybody who doesn't know what a crash bar is, it allows you to basically ha- a door be locked from the outside, but unlocked from the inside. Mm-hmm. So you I mean, can just push it and get out. Yeah. It's basically like the push bar that you mm-hmm. have on doors like if you've ever been in a school or anything you know Mm -hmm. the same principle still today yeah yeah the fire resulted in 602 deaths mostly women and children from the Mm -hmm. audience nearly all of the 500 performers survived wow (laughs) i don't know why there were this many fucking people in this show That yeah, also, did they just have like a back exit or something? Or like, well, and like, yeah, they had stage doors uh, and the backstage was super, it's like five floors of dressing rooms. And they, mm-hmm. Eddie Foy, who I was talking about, his son was actually there watching the show. And when he like saw the fire start, he grabbed his son who was watching from the wings and basically passed him to a stage hand and was like, get him the fuck out of here. Yeah. Foy and his son survived. But also I'm just like, so nowadays- Capacity for a theater is everybody in seats and performers and crew and every, like it's everybody. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine that that 1600 capacity, like it it was just seats. Additionally, I think they were actually near like 1800 or 2000. Like they had a ton of standing. The theater was packed. Yeah. 
However, nearly all of the 500 performers and the crew were able to survive because they were able to uh, escape through the stage doors. Yeah, okay. Ghosts. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the Iroquois fire ghosts. Um, today, performers like Anna Gasser, who I mentioned, they see folks wandering in the balconies during performances or rehearsals. Many, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who talk about seeing women and children in period dress in the stairways. That's um, creepy. Yeah, it gets worse. Um, Mm. Death Alley is a hotbed of gloomy, dismal energy. And many say that when they're walking down the alley, they feel like someone is following them. Mm. A lot of people hear someone whispering, like they're right whispering right in their ear or hearing their name called from like deep within the alley. Mm -hmm. They feel cold hands on their shoulders. A lot of people see people falling from the fire escapes. Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people frequently smell smoke in the alley. Yeah. A stage manager at some point had stepped into the alley for a cigarette and he heard a woman say, smoke will kill you. When he looked up, he saw a woman in turn of the century clothing and she vanished. Ooh. Like right as he looked at her, she vanished. That same stage manager who I I would love to know if he stuck around, if he was just like, okay. Or (laughs) if he was like, you know what? I'm going to go get a job somewhere else. Um, (laughs) That same stage manager also her, he would also hear the toilets flushing and little girls giggling in the ladies room. And he would go to investigate only to find the bathroom empty. Uh, The Iroquois Theater Fire is the worst theater and single building fire in U.S. history. Uh, It killed, I think, almost three times as many people as died in the Chicago Fire. Yeah, as talked about, not that many people died in the Chicago Fire. Yeah, it was like 200 and something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Since all of the victims could have been saved if corners weren't cut to save money, it's honestly no wonder why they're hanging around and making sure that that nobody else suffers the same fate. Yeah. Well, I mean like that cheeky ghost warning the stage manager. Mm-hmm. I love the double meaning of it too. Right. It's like one smoking will kill you. And two, like smoke it killed will kill me. you. Yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. Um, yeah. yeah. If you are interested in the gruesome, gory details of which there are many in it's, the Iroquois theater fire, go look it up, go listen to some of those podcasts. I, I think I had one, one of my rap, a whole nights on wikipedia where i read about the aircraft fire and the triangle shirtwaist fire on the same night it was a bad night yeah yeah it's they're real bad they're real bad yeah. okay the ghosts of flight 401 mm. on december 29th 1972 eastern airlines flight 401 left new york city traveling to miami it didn't make it it crashed into the florida everglades mm. right okay The crash occurred while the entire flight crew were preoccupied with a burnt out landing gear indicator light. Yeah. They failed to notice that the autopilot had inadvertently been disconnected and subsequently the aircraft gradually lost altitude and crashed. Mm. Yeah, it's another aircraft investigation episode. Mm hmm. Three of the four cockpit members, two of the 10 flight attendants, and 96 of the 163 passengers were killed. There Mm. were 75 survivors. This is also an interesting story because there's a whole bunch of, like, because they crashed in the Everglades. Right. Like a swamp that, like, cushioned the plane a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
people who were, and of course it couldn't like blah, 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 sink super far. Right. But there were a lot of people who like, they think didn't bleed out from their injuries because mud basically like Mm -hmm. plugged up the wounds. However, there was also like urine swamp mud. So a lot of people had to be put in like, um, what is it? Hyperbaric chambers afterwards. Like a lot of people got infections and stuff. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I know that there was like worries about alligators eating people, but I can't remember if that actually happened. Or I don't it was... think it did. I think it was just like in the sw- like alligator infested swamp waters right. of the Everglades. I mean, they would have had to like get into the plane, I guess. And I don't know mm-hmm. how much it like broke apart. But yeah. Flight 401 is another like very well-known crash. Like you said, it's been on the best TV show ever made. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of articles about it. So uh, I'm not really going to get into the flight, the story of the flight and the crash more than that, because we're here to talk about ghosts. Mm -hmm. The ghost stories from flight 401 are so well-known that it is part of the Wikipedia article on flight 401. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was even a, uh, the stories were even turned into a TV movie starring Ernest Borgnine. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to track that. It's probably on YouTube. It's probably like all, on YouTube. All those old TV movies are up on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> um. So tales of ghostly apparitions started again, almost immediately after the crash. Hunters, poachers, wildlife enthusiasts, mm-hmm. they, there were a lot of stories of these folks seeing faces like just under the surface of the water Ugh. when they were out in the Everglades. Again, lots of bobbing lights mm-hmm. um, in and around the swamps, lots of seeing ghostly figures and tattered clothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stuff like that. The faces here's, under the water. Just, the faces yeah. under the water. And I, what I saw was that they were like under the water and screaming. Like, it's bad. Ugh, yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. But here's like... This to me is like one of the more strange ghost stories. Like what I'm about to say is one of the more more strange ghost stories I've ever heard. And you'll find out why as I go on. Okay. So it was said that after Flight 401 crashed, it was recovered from the swamp and scrapped. But Mm -hmm. instead of getting rid of the plane completely, Eastern Airlines salvaged any usable parts and Mm. sent them to other planes. And so here's where our two main ghosts come into play, and they are the ghosts of Captain Bob Loft and flight engineer Don Repo. Okay. These were two well-known and well-liked men and both died in the crash. I believe Repo died in the crash itself, and I think Loft um, succumbed to his injuries Mm. in the hospital. Okay. But soon afterwards, passengers and crew alike started seeing the two of them on all of these other flights. Planes that had allegedly received parts from Flight 401. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Passengers would like be sitting in their seat and they would look over and suddenly see a man dressed in like full pilot uniform sitting in what had just moments before been an empty seat. Hmm. It was a type of thing where like, you know, like a passenger would look over, see a pilot, like the flight attendant would be walking by and like passenger and flight attendant would kind of look at each other and be like, uh. So they both saw him. Both saw him and the guy. And like in some cases, like they even tried to talk to him. Like they were like, are you a pilot? What's or and the man, yeah, man just wouldn't say anything and then whew, would just vanish. Ooh. 
Mm-hmm. In one case, both the captain and a flight attendant spoke to the ghost of what they they knew him of Bob Loft, mm-hmm. and the crew became so upset that the flight was canceled. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Another on another flight, a woman sat next to the ghost of Don Repo. And when he vanished right before her eyes, she lost, lost her, her shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was like, what the fuck? And she identified him like they showed her a picture and she was like, that's the guy that I saw. Mm-hmm. And that happened with a lot of like it was a lot of like captains and flight attendants and crews who knew Loft and Repo. Right, right. And then other people would be shown pictures and they were like, that's the guy I saw on the plane. Like that seems pretty definitive. Yes. On another flight, the galley oven was damaged and a flight attendant was like, what is going on with this? She goes and she sees Don Repo like tinkering Mm -hmm. with the oven and then he fixed it. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, thanks. I guess. Uh, um, dead guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On yet another flight, another flight attendant looked into a different galley oven and saw Don Repo's face looking back at her from inside Whoa. the oven. And she was like, what? Hold yeah. up. So she <laughs> called another flight attendant and the flight engineer over. And she was like, do you fucking see this? And they were like, oh, we 100% see this. At which point... The apparition of Repo warned them of a fire on the plane. This was a plane that was on its way to Mexico City. It made the first leg just fine, but it experienced a malfunction on the second leg of the trip, and they immediately turned around. The flight landed safely without incident, and the malfunction was fixed. They're all like, it was was because of Don Repo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like he he let us know. So helpful. He's a he's a helpful ghost. Both of them are apparently yeah. like they're just wandering around, like fixing stuff and saying hi and doing all this stuff. Bob Loft and Don Lepo were both kind and compassionate men, and it seems that mm-hmm. even in death, they continued to do what they could to keep everyone safe. Mm. Eastern Airlines has denied any and all ghost stories. Even ones told by the airline's vice president himself, who had an encounter with Bob Loft on one of the flights. Wow. Mm -hmm. Eastern Airlines went so far as to threaten dismissal to anyone caught spreading ghost stories. Really? So, I mean, for them to be that defensive about it. Mm-hmm. Because like most places or, or even companies, like you know, they, they kind of like a bunch of ghost stories. Yeah, it's either either they just like whatever it's a ghost story, or even they like kind of make it a thing. You know? Yeah, they lean into it a little bit. Yeah, no, but, like, they were like, like stop they were fucking like, talking about it. That yeah, that means that there's something there. Mm-hmm. I did, just real quick in rejection. I have to wonder like the fact that they're being seen on all these different planes. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of how like Marilyn Monroe is haunting like everywhere. Mm-hmm. in la and you have to wonder is like is it because like there's different like things that she owned or pieces of furniture or things that have just moved around and, yeah like, yeah yeah she's attached to like a lot of stuff yeah yeah exactly and along those same lines you know eastern airlines is like talking about the ghosts <laughs> however they did remove all salvaged parts from their entire fleet so yeah they're they fucking knew like, yeah. They knew, yeah over time 
as the salvage parts were removed from the fleet, sightings of loft and repo stopped. But an original floorboard from Flight 401 is still in the archives at History Miami in South Florida. And pieces of the wreckage can be found in Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, <laughs> Connecticut. Of course. Yeah, they've got a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I'm like, road trip. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the woman at Fresh Kills. Let's go back to her. Okay. Mediums believe that she was a soul collector there to guide folks into the afterlife. Mm. Lieutenant Frank Mara, he served with the NYPD, and he's also author of the book From Landfill to Hollowed Ground, knew her well. He saw her several times as okay. he uh, in the year that he did work at Fresh Kills to identify the bodies in the rubble. He actually like he saw her he saw her a lot. Mm. Um, and then according to him, he just sort of like buried the memory mm. until he started writing that book. And in it, he was asked over and over and over again by other volunteers if he'd ever seen the nurse with the tray of sandwiches. Mm -hmm. He believes that she was, in fact, a soul collector there to help the 1,000 victims who were never found, mm -hmm. whose remains ended up in that landfill and couldn't be identified. Right. Um, he says, quote, the landfill became holy ground, a place of rest for many who never recovered a cemetery without tombstones. And maybe that is why so many of these disaster areas seem to be haunted by the ghosts of their victims because they had no guide to help them over. Mm. And those are just a few tales of disaster ghosts. Wow. I mean, it kind of reminds me of your tsunami ghosts a little bit. Yeah. And that was the thing is that when I started to look this up, a big thing that was coming up was the tsunami ghosts. And the the interesting thing to me about this is, and, you know, again, getting into the macabre a bit, um, mm -hmm. there are a couple of disasters that I stumbled across that I was like, uh, actually, that whole story is a really good story. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do like a quick overview of it. So I will right. save those to do later. And the ghosts are actually not the most interesting part of it. Uh, okay. But what's interesting is... I first heard about the woman with the sandwiches. And again, what is so strange to me about this is that it is clear that she is not a victim of September 11th. Right. Yeah. Because it's like World War II, Red Cross, Red Cross nurse right. uniform, all of those things. So I first heard about it in the book Ghostland that I've, that I finished mm. reading right. uh, by okay. Colin Dickey. And he has one sentence about it at the end of the book. And I was like, I'm sorry, Excuse what are me? you talking about? <laughs> yes, it's literally one sentence. Wow. And so I went digging on this thinking that I was going to find endless articles about September 11th ghosts. And not she is literally the only one I can find. Wow. Well, because she helped them all move on. So, yeah. It was very, so that was very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it, there was stuff, this is going to sound, there were articles that were like the ghosts of September 11th, but it wasn't, it wasn't literal ghosts. It was like the metaphorical right, ghosts right, right. of the event and that kind of thing. But think about it. Have you heard a lot of September 11th ghost stories? No, I do. I do think I've heard, and I could be totally making this up. 
But just thinking about it, I feel like I've heard in passing people talk about the Flight 93 in Pennsylvania, the crash site. I think I've heard something about that Mm -hmm. area might be haunted, but I remember no details. So Mm -hmm. I could be completely conflating it with something else. Right. Okay. So there's that. And I'll look into that and see if there's any. I'll do an update. I do do know that I think there's ghosts uh, attached to the Pan Am Flight 103 in, in Scotland. So that yeah. would, I mean, that would make Flights sense. seem, I found a lot of articles that was just lists mm-hmm. of flight ghosts. Mm. Lots of stuff about that. But here's another story that I was like, like I started testing the theory and I was like, hold on, let me see if there's any ghost stories about this event. No ghost stories about Columbine. Mm, interesting. Yep. Yeah, I would have thought there would be, but. Yep. Especially the thing that is interesting to me about this is so many of these stories are like immediately afterwards, they started to see ghostly activity. Right. Now, there's also, again, Colin Dickey talks about in the book that as technology and society advances, ghost stories are becoming less and less and less because we as a society don't need them in the way that we did before. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why, Mm -hmm. but I found it. It could be if there's. Very interesting. I mean, if there are ghosts, it's like people aren't recognizing them for what they are, you know? Yeah. It's, I don't know. I would love to like, I I don't even know what kind of research would be entailed with that, but I started to look up like newer disasters and like, you've got the, um, you know, the tsunami ghosts, right? which is fairly recent, but you're also talking about a different country spiritually than the United States. Yeah. Like there's some cultural, there's some cultural differences there that make sense why there would be more of a emphasis on the ghosts and i'm interested i would be interested to see and hear if more recent disasters in other parts of the world if they're Mm -hmm. like yeah no there's like yeah we have ghosts and yeah they're common and we see them if it's something that like the united states is moving away from and like why that might be right yeah so there's a couple of spooky stories uh, yeah. for you all um like yeah. i said go and look up these these disasters because they were they're pretty interesting if you're um you know into that kind of thing again okay. there were a bunch more that i was gonna do apparently the titanic all of the titanic exhibits are all haunted that um, does not surprise me at all <laughs> no and i didn't know this either apparently so those like bobbing white lights they're sometimes called marfa lights because i guess mm-hmm. there's an area in Marfa where a lot of yeah, I could get into. <laughs> I mean, that's mostly bullshit, but I could get into that, but I won't. <laughs> right, but so there's sometimes called Marfa lights, and they're just like bobbing white lights. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, bobbing white lights have been spotted over where the Titanic sunk, mm-hmm. like on the middle of the ocean. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, bobbing mm-hmm. white lights is like. I mean, that's almost every major haunting story is going to have that. In yeah. Some, in some part of the story. Yeah. Uh, most of the exhibits of the Titanic have a recreation of the Grand Staircase. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of ghosts hanging out on that staircase. Uh, they think John Jacob Astor. They think his ghost hangs around there. Um, there's also a woman who's been spotted there. Lots of like kids and mm, stuff yeah. at the Titanic. Yeah. Um, which sucks. But yeah, I I. <laughs> 
I'm going to see if I can get the clip because I was watching it. I ended up not using the Titanic story in this, but I had done a little bit of research on it. Mm-hmm. But I ended up watching an episode of Ghost Adventures where they go to the Titanic Museum in Branson, Missouri, where they have built a mm-hmm. half scale recreation of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole, it's like the observation desk and the, I will say that this is a little creepy. If you can watch it, go watch it. But one of the guides there is like, yeah, we frequently will find like children's handprints on the windows. Ooh. Yeah. And they're small. They're like small handprints. They're clearly children, but on the windows, like at night after they've done the cleaning. Mm. That's yeah, yeah, that is creepy. Mm-hmm. And when they're in there, they're like going by the windows and they see a pair of small handprints on the window. And so they're like, oh my God, oh my God, like there's a kid here. We got to go like, and they're like, we're going to bring you some candy and some toys. If you talk to us, if you let us know that you're here and you know, they've mm. got all their different like apparatus and, right. and all that stuff. And so they're like, who's here? And it's like female. And <laughs> and then I'm like, where are you? Are you trapped inside? Like, you know, can we help you move on? And it's like six. And they're like, oh my God, it's a six-year-old girl. And so they're all doing this thing of like, we're going to bring you candy and stuff. So they go to a toy museum in Branson because they want to find an old timey toy right. to take back to that Like Titanic. a transformer or something. Right. <laughs> and the whole this scene is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen because it's the dude, Zach, who's like, we're ghost adventures. Do you believe in ghosts? And the little old woman is like, I do. And he's like, we were, you know, we made a deal with the ghost. And so we want to find an old timey toy to take back. And so she's like, okay. And he's like, do you think you might have something for us? And she was like, I might. And so they're going around <laughs> and it's a museum. But right. stuff is technically for sale. But so he's mm. like, oh, what about this? What about this like teeter totter? And she's like, no. And they're <laughs> like, okay, what about, what about this? What about this like old timey car? And she's like, oh, absolutely not. Like <laughs> everything that they're like trying to get, she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> and, and he's like, there's this one point where Zach is like, okay, ma'am, is there something that we can buy here? Because <laughs> it's getting late. And we do need to get back. And she's like, well, you know, we have a gift shop. (laughs) And so then they start talking about whether or not a new toy will be acceptable to the ghost. And there (laughs) is a train track that goes around, you know, like it's an elevated little toy train track that's going around the store that's going around. And they've just been like, oh, cool. Look at the train and it's going and blah, blah, blah. They're talking about whether, you know, the woman's like, we do have a gift shop. And Zach is like, I don't know if a new toy is going to work. And the woman is in the middle of saying, do you think a spirit is going to be able to tell the difference (laughs) when the toy train derails? (laughs) Nice. And after that, she's like, let's just find you guys something. (laughs) Yeah, she's convinced. (laughs) She's like, I don't want any fucking creepy, cold ice ghosts to come and haunt this store. <laughs> so absolutely not get something and get the fuck out. I, I've never really watched much of Ghost Adventures, but I always feel oh like my I, God. I would enjoy it. Scotty, you got it. It's the funniest thing ever. Like I was <laughs> I was texting Scotty last night because they went to the Los Feliz Murder Mansion and they, they did like three episodes in there. Wow. And they started getting like super aggro with one another. Like they'd be <laughs> sitting there and they'd, you know, camera in each other's faces and they were like, oh my God, do you got, oh my God, do you hear that? And then one of them would just be like, <laughs> 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 and like bat the camera away. And they were like, get out of here. I'm get out of my way. You're being stupid. And like <laughs> Zach kicked one of the guys. 
house. And then he started crying later. It is a trip. It is great. Whether you believe in it or not, it is excellent entertainment. You that said is- it's you said it's on like Discovery Plus. Yeah, I think it was a travel channel show, but if you want to look for it streaming, um, I think it's still, you know, they were just at the painted lady mm-hmm. um during the pandemic. I think they oh, also that's did right. the, yeah. they also did the comedy store during the pandemic because they're all in their okay. masks. Um, go and check it out. It is a great time, regardless of whether or not you believe in ghosts, mm-hmm. you believe in what these people are doing. It's a real good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is my final recommendation for the evening. <laughs> yeah no it's one of those shows i've always wanted to watch and i just never think about it so That's maybe great. tonight maybe i'll binge a bunch of it tonight i do yes. at least need to watch the Los Feliz murder mansion stuff you gotta it's <laughs> so funny it is so funny god bless those guys for doing what they do all right <laughs> uh hope everybody is stuffed full of turkey and thinking about you know taking some time to reflect it's getting near to the end of the year and we're all grateful for you and stay weird and stay curious and we'll see you next time bye bye Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest 